I want to invite you to go ahead and turn over to Psalm number 18 in your Bibles this morning. And I want to add my greeting to Seth's greeting from earlier, especially to those of you who are visiting, especially to those of you perhaps considering Christianity, unfamiliar with what it means to be a follower of Jesus or part of a local church. If that's you this morning, perhaps you don't have a copy of the Bible yet. So I want to begin by just offering you, as our gift to you, copies of the Bible that we've put at the end of each aisle, down here in the center, underneath the chairs on the end of the aisle. Somebody sitting over there will be happy to pass one to you if you don't own the Bible, and we'd love for that one to be yours. All right, I think my audio is sticking with me. Am I okay? Maybe I should stand right here, just like this, and not move the rest of the sermon. We're good. Uh, so we're going to be in Psalm 18 this morning because we are part, in, uh, early on in a, a, a series of psalms that's going to take us for the next six months. Uh, the, uh, the, the goal of this series is to teach us how to read these psalms because sometimes they're really accessible and immediately we know what to do with them, but lots of times we don't. They, they're, they're full of material that it sometimes seems foreign to us and, and that includes lots of language that we don't immediately understand because the images are rooted in another time or another place or the kinds of things that we're told to do don't immediately make sense to us, why they'd be good for us to do. And we want to use the psalms because they've been precious to God's people for thousands of years. We know we need them, but we don't always know how to use them well. So the goal of our series is, is to try to get more self-awareness and, and, and how to put these psalms into use in our own lives. What we're trying to do, because we only have six week, or excuse me, we only have six months, and there's 150 of these psalms, what we're trying to do is not cover them all, but to cover different categories of psalms, to make sure that we're touching the kinds of psalms that you'll find as you work your way through the book on your own. If you choose to read all 150 of them for yourself, there, you'll notice that some of them begin to sort of seem similar to other ones. And we want to make sure we're pulling from the big buckets of psalms that you're going to come across often so that you have some tools to use to, to read and understand them for yourself. The one that we come to this morning, Psalm 18... It's chosen because it's one of the best examples in the Psalms of one of the most common types of Psalms. It's known as a thanksgiving Psalm. And this one should appeal to the fans of epic summer blockbuster movies among you, fantasy lovers among you. This one's got it all. This one's got high suspense, mortal danger, desperate pleas for help, and a swooping, storming, chaos-causing, heroic intervention by a hero altogether not of this world. The psalm is a celebration of dramatic rescue. In other words, it's a psalm of thanksgiving. That's what those psalms are about. They begin with someone whose life is, is slipping away, someone in so desperate a condition they have nowhere else to turn, crying out for help, hoping God hears them. That's where the psalms of thanksgiving begin. And then they tell of dramatic rescue, of what God did when he heard that cry to rescue those who call out to him. That's what a psalm of thanksgiving is. It's a praise psalm. It's like a lot of other praise psalms in that way. It starts with with celebrating who God is, but it's more specific than other praise psalms. It praises God for him hearing the cries of those who were in need and acting to save them when they couldn't save themselves. Salvation. Is what this psalm is about. One of the Bible's most important themes. Rescue. Deliverance by God. But this psalm also raises some of the questions that can often derail us when we're using the psalms. Some of the things that we come across in the psalms that surprise us and make us wonder. So this morning, what I want to do is just take it as it comes. 
I want to get at its beauty and its power and its mystery. And I want to do that through one main question. So I've told you that the psalm is about rescue. It's about salvation. All Thanksgiving psalms are on this thing. I want to try to pick it apart and come to understand it better by asking one question of it. Whom does God save? The Bible says he saves. That's good news. I want to be saved. I'm sure you do too, one way or another. So the question is, who does he save? What would need to be true of me for me to enjoy the same kind of rescue that this psalmist got to enjoy when he needed it? That's the question I want to guide, use to guide our time this morning. And this one's long. This psalm is one of the, if I'm remembering correctly, it's one of the three longest psalms in the whole collection. It's 50 verses. So I'm not going to read them all right now while you're standing up. We always stand in honor of God's word when we read in our church. It's a way of honoring God through our bodies. We, uh, I'm going I'm to read the first three verses, the opening of the psalm, and then I'm going to read the rest of it as we go through it as we work our way through section by section by section. I'm going to invite you now, though, to stand with me while I read the way that David introduces his psalm. The first three verses are this opening chorus of praise where he just piles on images for God as his deliverer. Listen to what he says, beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 18. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress And my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. This is God's word. You can be seated. David's opening, those three verses capture the main themes of the whole psalm. He is unpacking what he says there. He is explaining how God proved himself to be a rock for him. That's the main image that comes through over and over in this psalm. He comes back to it several other times. God as a rock, as a place of protection, something you can hide in or behind. God as something you can stand on that won't be washed away by the storm. God as refuge. These first three verses tell you what the psalm will be about, but the fourth verse, which we haven't read yet, takes us directly into the action. And here's the first thing you need to notice about psalms of thanksgiving. They, they begin with the experience of the person who's writing some sort of desperate situation. And the first answer to the question we're asking of this psalm, who does God save? What do I need to know about whom God saves? If I want to be saved by God, here's what you need to know. You need to know that God saves the desperate verse 4 takes us there. The psalmist looks back to a time in his life when he was at the end, when he had nowhere else to turn. And one of the things I love about the psalms is that they use really dramatic, powerful images that bring to life things that we would normally consider just to be natural forces. Like so, so, so for example, in verse 4, when the psalmist is talking about where he where he was when God met him, he describes death almost like it's alive. He's at the end of himself. He's got nowhere else to turn. And he imagines death as this living thing that's got a hold on him. Look at verse four. The cords of death, he says, encompassed me. He imagines death as sort of sending out, almost, I almost think of it like a kraken, you know, like a, one of those old uh, uh, 
mythical sea monsters that grabs a hold of ships and pulls them down into the ocean, sending up these tentacle arms up out of the grave for him, grabbing a hold of him, wrapping him up. The cords have entangled him. He can't, he can't turn anywhere. His, his arms are pinned down, even if they were strong, even if he had weapons. He couldn't use them because death's cords are all around him and he's got nowhere else to turn. Then he describes the torrents of destruction assailed me. Think of a fast-moving, rushing water that's washing over him. He's not looking ahead to death coming for him. He's in it already. He's drowning. He's bobbing up. It's, I almost imagine him as somebody who's got no, nothing to do with their arms. The cords of death have got him all tangled up, and he's just fighting for the surface, looking for any kind of breath, gasping, bobbing up and down. This man is desperate. He's on the edge. He's overwhelmed with no way out. He's got one move and one move only. Verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. And to my God, I cried for help. His arms were useless. His body could do nothing to save him. He used the one thing he had left. He raised his voice and he cried. And verse 6 says that from his temple, far away, far above, he heard my voice. My cry to him reached his ears. Now watch what happens and be amazed. Watch what happens when this God, the God who saves, hears the cry of one simple, single, desperate man who calls to him. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the mountains trembled. Think of the mountains as the biggest, most immovable forces or realities in the world. That's how the ancient mind thought of them. The mountains, even at their own foundations, trembled. This is no rock slide. This is happening down beneath where no one goes. They quaked because he was angry. Verse 8 imagines him like a dragon. Smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. This is like a dragon who's, who's also got the power to shoot out coals from his arms. This is amazing. This is fantasy stuff. This is like, imagine this special effects of a, of a 21st century movie trying to put this into a scene. He bowed the heavens and came down and thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and he flew now he's not a dragon anymore. He's, he's some sort of figure riding on one of these winged angels. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. Even the wind, this unstoppable force that the ancient mind knew was, was, was completely uncontrollable, something that they would have been helpless against. God uses it as his own personal device. He rides on it swiftly, the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. Think of the depths the deepest places in the earth 
exposed and laid bare. The places that no human will ever go because they're so far. Even now with our technologies, we can't even come close to seeing what the depths of the oceans hold. Now they're seen. And the foundations of the world are laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. What's happening here? Well, pretty much everybody I read doesn't think David is describing something that actually happened, something that he actually saw. These descriptions do sound like some things Israel experienced. Some of this is drawn straight from the Exodus story. For example, when God delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he, he did part the sea so that the depths were seen. Things did, fire did just appear as a pillar that went before them and protected them. Joshua saw some similar things as he was leading Israel into the land. But here, based on where the psalm goes next, it seems like David is using this imaginative and poetic language to describe what he saw God doing through things that seemed a lot more natural than normal. So, for example, if you skip over to verse 32, David describes the same deliverance from God using language that sounds a lot more tame. I'm going to start back in verse 31. Who is God but the Lord, he says. Who is a rock except our God? He's still talking about God as a rock or a refuge, but now look at how he describes him. The God who equipped me with strength, who made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. In other words, he kept me from stumbling. He made my my feet sure. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. He sees God's deliverance in the fact that he doesn't fall, in the fact that his hands work, in the fact that he has strength for the battle that's in front of him. You've given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave me a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. You get the idea. So now he's talking about the same, the same deliverance, but, he's, but now he's showing you he sees God's deliverance in the things that he had in his own body. Hands that could bend a bow. Strength that could fight a battle. Feet that didn't slip even when it got hard. The reason he talks about this deliverance in the language that he uses in verses 7 to 15, the reason he uses this incredible, evocative imagery is that he wants you to notice an almost unbelievable point. That this mighty Lord This ruler over all the powers of the earth, this one who sees and knows and governs everyone and everything that is, this God who rides on the wings of the wind, he hears the single quivering whisper of a man so feeble he's about to die. This God over all listens to me. He uses this language to make a contrast that's powerful when you come to see it. And I think that's why he uses the language he uses beginning in verse 16. He's still celebrating this deliverance from God. Listen to how often he uses the word me. And I want you to imagine it like this, like I'm about to read it. He, this God who sends out arrows and scatters them and flashes forth lightnings and thunders from on high. The one who lays bare the foundations of the world, he, that God, 
He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. This God, before whom the foundations of the mountains tremble, hears and rescues me. Whom does God save? The first thing you need to notice in this psalm is that God saves the desperate. He is not like the powers of this world who only give as good as they get, who favor other powers, who only give when they stand to gain something. Pay much attention to history and you'll see that power normally corrupts. It makes you want more and more and more and more. It goes in that direction, not the other, but not with God. This power, the power, draws near to the brokenhearted. This God is not like the powers you know in this world. He saves, verse 27 says, the humble. And what he does when he delivers is swap places. He who was on high in his temple drew near to those who were down low, sinking into the depths. From the heights he entered the depths so that he could raise up from the depths those who had nowhere else to turn and place them on high ground. That's how God saves. That's what he does. He comes down to lift up those who are desperate enough to cry out to him. Are you desperate enough to cry out? Are you ready to give up? Are you pretty much over trying to think your way out of what you've got in front of you? Are you at the end of your strength and sick of your failure? Maybe you even feel what the psalmist did. You feel like the cords of death have wrapped around you, like they won't let go, like you're on the edge of drowning in a crowd this size. It isn't melodrama to imagine that some of you may be there past hope. And if you are, this psalm is here so that you will know that you are exactly where God loves to meet those who look to him. Cry out like David did and he will hear you. Whom does God save? God saves the desperate. So far, so good. Then, in the middle of the psalm, at its heart, the psalmist says something about why God saved him that can be very difficult for us to get our minds around. I want to just read you where he goes next. We've read through verse 19 so far. I want to pick up in verse 20. Listen to what David says about why God saved him. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me 
and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. So who does God save? God saves the righteous. Why did God save David? Because David deserved it. Almost reads like a tit-for-tat exchange, doesn't it? Simple transaction. God gives as he gets? God saves those who deserve it? Well, yes, but. The rest of our time together, I want to I probe here. Because this kind, of, this kind of language is not unique to this psalm. It comes up pretty often through the psalms. And personally, at least, I, I've had trouble with it, knowing what to do with it when I come across it. I'm trying to pray through one. I'm trying to connect with it. It sounds like me. It sounds like the despair I've known. It sounds everything good so far. Then you hit something like that. And it's like everything comes screeching to a halt. Like, I don't feel blameless. I know I'm not righteous. So what hope do I have if I'm desperate but not righteous? I want to stop here and really unpack this because both because it's crucial for you to understand about God and what it takes to be saved and because it'll really help you as you move through the rest of the Psalms to try to understand where David or others are coming from and use them in your own life. I think we need to start by just acknowledging what's true here, what's right here on the surface of the text. God saves the righteous. Those who are, what, to be righteous means to be right in his sight, to be in good standing, to be what you're supposed to be, what he's asked you to be. And that makes this a jarring passage. I mean, if, if you've read Psalm 17, you know there's, there's a passage almost just like it just before this psalm. Here's what David says there. You've tried my heart. You visited me by night. You've tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I've avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. What do we do with these claims of innocence? When something jars us like this, when it seems out of place or unexpected, almost always that means we're in position to learn something really important. It's time not to move on, but to stop, to slow down, to pick apart to be really careful, to make sure we're understanding what's going on. Oftentimes, where things hit us like this, out of nowhere, those are the places where we most need to learn and and to grow and be shaped in our understanding of who God is and and what's good. So let's ask some follow-up questions. The psalm says that God saves the righteous. What does that mean? Here's the first thing I want to say about that. What does it mean that God saves the righteous? Well, the first thing that's helpful, I think, to understand what he means is that David's writing as a part of a covenant God had made with Israel. When he talks about righteousness, he's talking about righteousness on the terms of a relationship God set up with him. Relationship kind of like marriage. Marriage, you make a covenant with your spouse and it has lines in it. It has promises in it. So being righteous in marriage is to have been true to the promises that you made in your marriage. Similarly, when God saved Israel 
out of Egypt, he followed up that grace, that new relationship that he founded with them. He followed it up with some terms, with a covenant, a set of principles that were supposed to help Israel know how to live in a way that honored him, that that treated him like he was God instead of all the neighbors around them and their gods, that showed they wanted to be faithful to him and to him alone. They wanted to marry him and not all the other options that were around them. This covenant that was put in place promised things, promised God's goodness and favor, and it required things. It required Israel to to listen to him, to obey him, to trust him and not others. So when David says that he was righteous, when he says that he's kept the ways of the Lord, when he says that all God's rules were before him and his statutes he didn't put away from him, he's talking about that covenant, the specific things God had called for from him. He isn't saying he's perfect in every respect. He's saying, I've kept the terms, especially in this situation that's probably behind the psalm, perhaps referring to a time when David was being hunted by Saul. Saul knew David wanted his throne and was destined for his throne and he wanted to put an end to him. And so David ran and during the time that he ran, he had lots of chances to take his revenge on Saul and he didn't. He always did what was right. He followed God's ways in that situation and God honored him for it. He blessed him for it. Could be that's what's on David's mind. He followed what God set down. In his time, when people would have read this psalm, that's what they would have been thinking about. They would have thinking about God's, comis, God's covenant with them, and they would have heard from this psalm more evidence that God always keeps his promises, that he's true to his word. Because in that covenant, here's what God had said. This is Deuteronomy chapter 11. I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. This can go two ways for you, he told Israel. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way I'm commanding you to go after other gods that you haven't known. See what he's doing there? Gives him this covenant. Here's our relationship. I want to marry you. And then he's saying two ways this can go. You can keep the covenant. I will bless you. You can reject the covenant. Marry yourself to some other God. I will curse you. Same thing comes up at the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 30. The Lord says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse, two ways this can go. Therefore, choose life. Please, choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God and obeying his voice and holding fast to him for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers. What this psalm is saying is that David embraced that covenant. At least in this situation, behind this psalm, he did exactly what God told him to do. And God did what he said he would do. He blessed those who heard his word and obeyed it. That's layer one. That's what most early readers of this psalm would have been thinking about. David was delivered by God because David obeyed the terms of the covenant God had made with him. And I think we need to stop right here and affirm the truth in what this psalm says about who God is and about how he relates to us. Yes, absolutely. God responds to the desperate, the needy, the humble, 
They're broken. And, yes, God responds to the righteous. Righteousness matters to God. Not in a transactional way, but in a relationship. A relationship founded sheerly by God's grace. He plucked Israel out of Egypt when they had nowhere else to turn simply because he loved them. By his own grace, he did that. But the relationship matters. It matters to him that they are loyal to him and to no one else. It matters that they want him because he loves them. He's not impersonal, but deeply personal. He wants a relationship with them and he wants them to want it. And being healthy in relationship with him depends on righteousness. That's what the psalm teaches and we we shouldn't shy away from it. There's a sense in which God's love is not unconditional in the way we often mean that word. We can't afford to be casual about sin as if God is just some sort of lovable, tolerant grandfather amused by the mistakes of feeble humans but not really affected by them, not really having deep opinions about them or emotions in response to them. The same careful invested attention that brings this God roaring down from his temple at the cry of a desperate person that he loves, that same attention, that same investment applies to the lives of his people, to the choices that they make, to their choice of whether to worship and love and serve him or something, someone else. It matters to him. God saves the righteous. So I want to turn to a question I asked earlier. Where does that leave those of us who are desperate but not righteous? God saves the desperate and God saves the righteous. What about those of us who are desperate but not righteous? The last few minutes we've got here this morning, I want to probe in here. There's another layer to this psalm and what it teaches about God that we've got to understand, that we get to understand in a way that's more full and complete than David ever could because we live on this side of Jesus. What I want you to see this morning is that this psalm falls in a stream that flows straight to Jesus and his perfect life and his death on the cross and his resurrection to save sinners. That this psalm is being pulled at by tension that runs all through the Old Testament and only gets resolved by Jesus. That's what I want to show you this morning in the few minutes we've got left. This psalm is part of a collection of other psalms, many of them written by the same man. And this this language about righteousness doesn't sit that well with other things this same man says in other psalms, if you take it at face value and don't push deeper. For example, just a few psalms before 18, in Psalm number 14. Listen to what David says there. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man, David writes, to see if there are any who understand and who seek after God. But they've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. And here's what he says. There is no one who does good. Not even one. How do you put that up against the righteousness David is talking about of himself in Psalm 18? 
Or, or maybe another more famous example about sin is Psalm 51. We're going to be taking a close look at that next month together here at Trinity. Psalm 51, David has just been exposed for a, a, a horrible sin that included infidelity and murder. And God had convicted his heart. He saw himself as he was guilty of that sin. And he cries out to God in Psalm 51, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. This is a man who knows he's not righteous. Psalm 32, which we'll also look at together. It praises, calls blessed the one whose transgression is forgiven, not the one who's never sinned. But the one whose sin is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. In other words, not the man who's never sinned, who's been perfectly blameless for his whole life, but the one who gets treated like he's never sinned. What's David looking forward to there? See, in the Psalms, including Psalm 18, we're we're part of something much bigger than any one psalm can, can contain. We're pointing to to factors that Israel was wrestling with, they were hearing from God about grace and law, responding to the desperate, responding to the righteous, God punishing them when they were in sin, but then rescuing them from the punishment that he gave them, back and forth, back and forth, all through the Old Testament. This psalm falls in a stream that flows straight to Jesus, a tension that only gets resolved in him. A lot of this psalm points to the fact that it's, it's bigger than David and anything David experienced. I think the language that he uses for God, all that fantasy-ridden language about God and the smoking nostrils and the flame of fire out of his mouth and all that stuff, it, it pulls from other parts of Israel's history and applies them to David's. And the fact that this psalm is in the collection means that we're supposed to pull from this experience and apply it to our own. That this same God who was active in David's life was active before David and would be active after David. And this is what it looks like for him to save. We're supposed to look from this psalm bigger supposed to look from this psalm forward. And the psalm itself points us there at the very end of it. Look at the last two verses of Psalm 18. Psalm 18, verse 49, is quoted by Paul. He treats it as words said by Jesus in Romans chapter 15. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed to David and his offspring forever. What's he saying there? He's pointing way past his own lifetime. He's talking about God's anointed. The word for that is God's Messiah. He's pointing not just to his own throne, to David and his own experience, but to what would be true in the experience of David's successor, the one who would sit on David's throne forever. This is all code language, friends. Code language that only comes to the surface and gets clear when Jesus comes. When Emmanuel, God with us, actually takes on a body, walks around on earth blamelessly, gives up that body once and for all on the cross as a sacrifice that has the power to make righteous even people who aren't. This psalm is about Jesus. David's life, his experience of God, only set a pattern, just like the Exodus did. It only added some evidence for how God works, and it's all pointing towards the one through whom God would work once and for all. 
few months back, we were in a series in Paul's letter, his second letter to the Corinthians. I love the way that Paul summarizes the truth about Jesus in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. In that letter, Paul's writing to them, trying to remind them to stop trying to prove themselves in the eyes of the world. They were all about that. They wanted status. They wanted to make a mark. They wanted to be known and remembered and loved and affirmed by those who were watching them. And he keeps pounding at them on that, saying, no, give that up. You need to be more desperate than you are and realize there is no name you could make for yourself that will stand the test of time. And he keeps pointing them back to Jesus, saying, Jesus is all you need. Jesus is who you are. And one of my favorite parts of that letter is this part at the end of chapter 5. It reminds me so much of what David captures in Psalm 18. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, Paul wrote. You're not who you were. The old has passed away. You and all your attempts to be righteous, gone. The new has come. And all this is from God. God just gives it. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, God has made peace between himself and people who weren't righteous. Peace depends on being right with God. Peace is not what we had with God on our own in the old man. He's traded it out. He has made an exchange on his own, and all of it is from him. And look at what he says. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, treating them as if they really were righteous, making his appeal through us to them be reconciled to God. For our sake, Paul says, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He took the one truly righteous person who had ever lived, the only one whose hands really were innocent of all wrongdoing, who really was blameless. He knew no sin. And God treated him like he was sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God that we might be the righteous person God is willing to save. God's love is not unconditional love for sinners. It's love for sinners that fulfills all conditions for them. Another one in Paul's letters in Romans, chapters 3 and 4, he's making the exact same point I just read from 2 Corinthians And he starts with several quotes from the Psalms. He quotes from Psalm 14 that I quoted from earlier. He says, look, there's no one righteous. Give it up. You're not desperate enough if you think you can be righteous enough for God. Give it up. There's no one righteous. He quotes from Psalm 32. God counted not their sins against them. Instead, he counted them as righteous because of their faith. So what do we do with a psalm like this one that expects us to be righteous if we want to be saved by God? We look through it to the one who was righteous for us. One of the things I've said about psalms and why we're studying psalms is that they help us understand who God is and they help us understand how to relate to him. Psalm 18 does both. What Psalm 18 tells us about who God is is that he isn't maybe who we think he is. I think all of us are prone to emphasize one side or the other. We like to think about God as tolerant, as easy to please, 
as not expecting us to be anything other than what we are. We say things like, everyone's a mess. So what? God's love only ever says yes. But friends, that love sells God short. That sort of love is far beneath the kind of love he actually has for you. A kind of love that's intense, that's deeply affected by what you do and what you think and what you say. A kind of love that takes you seriously, wants more for you than that. A kind of love that has a purpose, an agenda in your life, that isn't willing to let you stay as you are, that wants you to actually have the freedom of living a life that is what it should be. I love the way one writer puts it. God doesn't accept me just as I am. He loves me despite how I am. He loves me just as Jesus is. He loves me enough to devote my life to renewing me in the image of Jesus. His love isn't unconditional. It's a love that fulfills conditions for me. He is the friend of the righteous. But he gives righteousness as his gift. Sometimes we can think of God just as so tolerant that we miss out the depth of his love. Others of us fall off on the other side of a cliff. We think of God as one who demands righteousness and ourselves as those who give it to him. Maybe we wouldn't put it quite that way, but I think it shows up in our assumptions. It shows up in the way we judge other people and the way we think well of ourselves and like to contrast ourselves with others. This, This view of God says don't bother coming to him unless you bring it. You get what you pay for. And what that leaves is either self-righteousness that's always looking down on others or a despair that makes you hide yourself from others, that makes you posture, that causes hypocrisy. What it doesn't ever cause is freedom. It's no way to live. And friends, you don't have to live like that. Because God is a friend of desperate people. He demands righteousness but he gives it freely to those who are desperate enough to ask for it. That's what we learn about God. We also learn about how to relate to him here. And I want to finish, I want to just tell you this afternoon, practice praying this prayer in Christ. Pray as if you're overwhelmed and entangled by the cords of death and remember that Jesus really was. Cry out to God and see God's deliverance of Jesus from death. And in his deliverance of Jesus from death, see your own foreshadowed. Pray these prayers of innocence and know that they're true of you if you're in Christ. In Christ, you can pray to God from your despair and tell him, I am innocent. I am blameless. I have kept your statutes before me because Jesus is innocent. Jesus is blameless. Jesus kept his rules, all of them, in front of him. And Jesus gave that record to you. Because it was true of him, it's also true of you now. And you can pray to God to save you because in Christ, you deserve it. Don't balk at that prayer. Pray it with faith and joy. And know that the God who loves justice and always upholds it will give you exactly what Jesus deserves. He will give you life and safety and honor and blessing now and forever. Father, we pray that you would help us to see ourselves in Jesus and to give up any old way of knowing ourselves that won't stand the test of time. 
We need lives that will last. We need lives that are free from all the things that have been holding us back. And we've seen in this psalm that you love to give life to those who cry out to you. That's what we do now. For Jesus' sake, give us life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.